Good morning, everybody. I want to start this morning with just a moment of introspection. So if you could all with me, close your eyes, look into your mind, find the great switchboard of controls that is your mind, look through all the colorful buttons, the knobs, and the levers, go ahead and find one of those knobs marked Sunday morning expectations. I want you to do me a favor, go ahead and turn that knob all the way down. Okay? If you can do that, we can get through this morning. I want to start by saying that I am not a theologian. I am not a trained pastor by any means. I am not a public speaker. I am a layman. And as a layman, I'm going to attempt to bring to you this morning from the Word of God. We're going to be looking at Psalm 25 this morning, but before we start, let's pray, because I need it, and so do you. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne this morning because of the work that your Son Jesus has accomplished for us. Because of Jesus, we've been counted worthy to receive the gift of work and salvation. I pray in the name of Jesus for your glory, Lord, and for the joy of your people that the power of the Holy Spirit would be upon me this morning to speak clearly and concisely the message that you want us to receive. I pray that blind eyes would see and deaf ears would hear. Would we be a church who listens and obeys? Jesus, I pray this in your holy name. Amen. Now, I've always wanted to do this. Bear with me, please. That's all. That's what I wanted to do. Um... Okay, if you have a Bible, please turn it to Psalm 25. It's uh, probably about a third of the way through. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will deliver to you a Bible that you can keep if you don't have one. But if you do have one, go ahead and please return it at the end of the service. Okay, I'm going to read it for you here. Psalm 25 of David. Teach me your paths. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress, consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. 
Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So this is the word of God. The Bible that we're reading from credits this psalm to a man named David. And we take the Bible at its word. Uh, If you don't know much about David, that's fine. But I would really encourage you to read the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and 1st and 2nd Kings as they describe not only David, but the other kings of Israel um, as Israel was governed by kings. They're very exciting. You know, we, we often think of the Old Testament as pretty dry, pretty dreary, pretty boring. It's actually quite exciting, and it's a very good read. Um, If you're not familiar with David, I'll give you a quick synopsis here. The first king of Israel was a man named Saul. And while Saul was king, God appointed David to be the next king of Israel. But God waited 17 years to actually install David as king. So David knew he was going to be king and had to wait almost 20 years to become king. For the last half of those 17 years, Saul was seeking to kill David to prevent him from becoming king. Uh, David eventually becomes king and reigns for 40 years. In Judeo-Christian circles, David is often considered to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest king who ever ruled in Israel, apart from, of course, Jesus. Um, David's kingship is tarnished, however, when he sins by committing the sin of adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he murders her then-husband Uriah. So as a result, the Lord predicts that David's kingdom is going to be, um, there's going to be an attempt at David's kingdom from his own son Absalom. Enter Absalom, who uh, for the last half, or sorry, for the last eight years, let's see here, I'm nervous, I don't know if you can tell that, I'm nervous. Uh, Absalom, David's son, who attempts to take David's throne for an eight-year stretch before Absalom himself is killed in battle. It is likely, scholars speculate, during this eight-year period that David wrote this psalm. So that's a little bit of a context here. Matt was reading my mind. I was going to tell Matt when to turn slides. He already did. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I think we can go to the next slide. Yeah. Psalm 25 is written in a very specific manner. It's pretty interesting. Uh, In the Hebrew language, it was written in a way called an alphabetic acrostic poem. And we would would equate that to a poem where each stanza is is succeeded by another successive letter in the alphabet. So the first stanza would start out with the first letter A as in apple. Second stanza would be B as in battle. C would be C as in cattle, etc., etc., Likely, David wrote it this way to aid in memorizing the prayer. For our purposes, we can divide Psalm 25 into five sections. The first is an opening introduction. It's a statement of trust. Those are verses 1 to 3. The second is a plea for deliverance from sin. That's verses 4 to 7. The third, praise of God's faithfulness, verses 8 to 11. Four would be fear of the Lord, something we don't often talk about verses 12 to 15. And finally, there's an additional statement of trust 
and an outroduction in 16 to 22. The meatiest bit of the psalm is found in the middle three sections, um, and I'm going to attempt to work our way through the entire psalm while maintaining integrity to the psalm as a whole, but kind of digging out the heart of the psalm and presenting to you that this morning. So first, first one here. We can go ahead, Matt. Thank you. God, deliver me. So Psalm 25 starts out with a declaration of trust. In you I trust, oh my God. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. So if you consider David's context when he wrote this psalm, it's a little bit different from ours today. I don't know about you, but no one followed me to the church this morning trying to assassinate me. I'm not important enough to be assassinated in the first place. Um, maybe some of you are. I, I don't know. But David's context was one of um, fear. One where he was reminding himself that his kingdom was promised to him. God himself told David that he was going to be king over Israel. And then his flesh and his blood, his son, his child, was attempting to take the throne from him. Again, our context is a little bit different in that our concepts of honor, of dignity, of family, they're, we're, we're actually quite unique in this sense. We don't we don't honor our family the way most cultures on the planet do today. Honor and family are very important for a lot of people. And they would have been very important for David in his cultural context. So if you can imagine, try to think of um, you know, another culture in the world where family is kind of elevated to, the, to that point. And, and that's likely where David would have been, or closer to where David would have been anyways. Um, we were in China just uh, a matter of weeks ago, and there, there is this difference in culture that you can actually feel. There's this, you know, they, they refer to it as a saving face. You have to save face in everything you do. You honor your family. You don't speak badly of your family. So for David's son to not only dishonor his father, but be trying to assassinate him, seeking after his kingdom, that was shameful. That would have been David's context for shame. Now, my context for shame is usually a little bit different. The most shame I usually feel is when I sleep in and I'm late for work. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of being late for work. A little bit of a difference in context there. I don't, as I said, have too, too many enemies seeking to publicly shame me. Although if I did, they could just come watch me fumble my way through the sum. <laughs> I'm giving them all the ammo they need. Um, however, if we take our social cues from the Word of God, as we do as Christians, we will find that we, as a matter of fact, do have enemies. They're not enemies of flesh and blood. I would put forward to you, if you read the book of Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul writes, our enemies are the rulers of the air, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those enemies, Satan and his forces, they actually are trying to shame us. If you've ever read the book of Job, you'll see this picture of Satan the accuser standing before God, pointing to Job and saying, this guy's not that great. What do you, what do you love him so much for? <clears throat> you have this, almost this picture of a, a prosecutor in a court of law coming before the judge and condemning Job, saying, this guy, you don't want to waste your time with this guy. Lock him up. 
And I would put forward to you, friends, that Satan does a very similar thing to us today. Satan stands before God and accuses us in God's presence. If you don't believe me, I would invite you to consider, have you ever felt ashamed before God? Have you ever felt worthless, that your sin is too much, that the Bible is a, it's a pretty good message, but it doesn't apply to you because, because let's face it, you're just too dirty, you're too filthy, you're too sinful. Have you ever felt that way? Because I know I have, almost on a daily basis. That is, friends, Satan standing before God and you whispering in your ear, Jesus' work doesn't cover your sin. That's Satan the accuser standing before God saying, God, don't waste your time on these people. Now the good news, that's pretty bad news. The good news is that God does not look any further than the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God looks at Jesus and counts his work as a covering for our sin. That's tremendous news. Thank you. That's encouraging. Except I've gotten ahead of myself. <clears throat> I think I covered everything here. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on. Matt, next slide, please. God, forgive me. All righty. So this, this part, I think, is the most exciting part of the whole psalm um, because this kind of is the gospel message. I know I kind of gave you a little bit of the gospel there, but here's where it gets good. Okay, I'm just going to summarize verse 4 to 7 here. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Again, I want you to consider when and where David prayed this psalm. It's as his son sought after him to kill him and take the throne from him. So he likely wouldn't have been you know, on the way to the grocery store, kind of just muttering this prayer up into the ether, hoping that God answers him. Probably not, right? He probably would have been on his knees, probably would have been crying, probably would have been begging God to show me what you're doing here. You told me, you told me that I was going to be king. And my son, my kid, is trying to take this from me. What is going on, God? Please show me what you're doing. I would say that David here is reminding himself of God's promise to him. He's attempting to focus himself, to center himself on God's goodness and God's truth, God's promise to him. And I think this is something that we need to do on a regular basis, probably even a daily basis, perhaps even hourly or minute by minute. Because again, I know I do. I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this our desire here this morning? You don't have to answer that, but I want you to think about it. Is that your desire? Is that your desire to know the ways of the Lord? To know the truth? If that isn't your desire this morning, do you desire that to be your desire? I know that's a little bit tricky to think about, but do you want to want to know the truth? Maybe you're at a place where it's like, ah, I don't care. You know, I just don't care. Life is good. Whatever. Maybe that's where you're at, but you kind of have this little tingle in your heart. You're like, I, I, could, I could see how that might be nice. Maybe I want that. If that's you today, I would put forward to you that this psalm 
applies to both those mindsets. This psalm is where we start to pray no matter where your desire is. If your desire is to know the Lord or if your desire is to desire to know the Lord. This psalm is great to pray in either of those headspaces. Let me tell you something. I have actually prayed this prayer, this psalm, word for word, several times throughout my life. You can come up and look in my Bible. It's a journal Bible. You can look at the times in my life when I have prayed this psalm, begging God to show me the way, begging God to show me the truth. I would say that that is God's desire for us in this psalm. God wants us to seek him through his word. Why do I believe that? I think, and I'll do my best to explain this, I think that that's God's desire because he lays out for us how to respond to his initiation towards us to be in relationship with him. I'm dry. Sorry. It's exciting news. I would put forward to you that it is our innate desire as human beings, no matter if you're Christian or not, it's our innate desire as human beings to know the truth. Everybody is seeking truth. Everybody wants to know what is truth. I don't care what language you use, you want to know the truth. Um, dang it. Sorry. I often hear people say, say something along the lines of, I would be doing what God wants me to be doing if I knew what God wants me to be doing. And friends, I've said that too. I've said that to some of you. Some of you can say, yeah, Simon, you've said that. You've asked that question. I would say that this, this psalm, these verses, God is giving us permission to ask. Lord, what do you want me to be doing? What is your way? What is your truth? And I actually think that this psalm births an even deeper question, which is, who is God? What is the truth? So, I'm a firm believer that Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you want to turn with me to the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, I'll read it for you here. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So, the biggest, the biggest piece of this verse that I see are the parallels to the prayer that David just prayed. Did you guys see that? Did you catch that? Let me point them out for you. David prays, make me to know your ways. Lead me in your truth. And Jesus comes on the scene and answers that word for word. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. This means that Jesus Christ is the culmination of Scripture. And it is our joy as Christians to submit our minds to the Holy Spirit and see how Scripture points to Jesus. I know probably some of you or all of you, myself included, have been in a position where you read something in the Bible and you're like, how on earth can that make sense? As I said, it is our joy as Christians to submit our minds and our wills to the Holy Spirit and learn how Scripture points to Jesus. And if you can't do that right now, join the club. It takes time and work and effort and patience on our part. Okay, I was kind of rambling there, sorry. This, I think, this verse, my mom's laughing at me. This verse is one of the pillars of Christianity. 
this verse is kind of the linchpin of what we as Christians believe. If you're not a Christian, kind of checking it out, you don't have to look farther than this verse right here. If you don't, if you don't see this verse as pointing to the truth, I would invite you to keep digging, but you, you could walk away from Christianity because this, this right here is what Christianity means. Jesus is our truth. The very nature of truth is singular and exclusive. Take, for instance, gravity as an example. You can't really, you can't really mess with the truth of gravity all that much. You can't really say, yeah, I've heard of it. I don't believe it, though. I don't accept it. I, I guess you could say that, but you're going to have a rough time if ever you come to the business end of, of gravity. And I know this is kind of a hard word, and it's very not seeker-sensitive, but perhaps that's going to be the, the case one day, coming face-to-face coming -face with the truth, which is Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is, truth can only be accepted or denied, not disbelieved. I would put forward to you that to disbelieve the truth is really to deny it, which is okay. That's, 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 a, that's a matter of your heart that you can, you can choose. Again, this is, this is kind of a, a hard word. It's kind of bad news. But the good news is that Jesus Christ offers salvation to each and every one of us. It's the most exclusive thing you can say while at the same time being the most inclusive thing. It's the exclusive truth that Jesus is the only way, but the inclusive truth, truth is that he's the only way for you. For you. Every single one of us. For me. Jesus is truth, and he offers us salvation, each and every one of us. That is good news. Tremendously good news. Okay. If we agree that Scripture points to Jesus, and Jesus is the truth, what is it that Jesus is telling us that he wants from us? Matt, if you could go to the next slide. If you want, turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 9. I'll read it here. If anyone would come after me, that's Jesus speaking here, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's interesting that we see shame here again. I would put forward that Jesus is giving us a fuller picture of what it truly means to be ashamed. We have our own context for shame. We have our own definition of shame. We can all picture ourselves, you know, up here in front of all you in our underwear or something. That'd be shameful. I'd be ashamed, you know. But perhaps Jesus is saying, your definition, definition of shame is different than mine. The way in which our minds naturally default, Jesus is saying... I would say is wrong. So the way we naturally think on a subject is not necessarily the truth. The book of 2 Corinthians, written by a guy named Paul, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 says this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now if you kind of glance over that, you might think that's referring to God the Father in heaven. I would say, no, that's not actually, that's not actually true. Paul is referring here to Satan. 
Paul is saying that Satan is actually ruler and controller of this earth for a time that he's been given. That is not something we very hear. We very hear? We hear very often, especially from the pulpit. We say things as Christians like, God is in control. God's got it. God's good. Those are true in that God is all sovereign. God is sovereign over Satan and Satan's control of our earth. And that God uses all things to come together together for the good of those who love him. But there is an element that if you're not under the authority of Christ right now, you're under the authority of the enemy. And your mind defaults to that position. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Uh, In the book of Romans... Paul continues here, chapter 12, verse 2. He says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So with this information, we go back to what Jesus was saying. We know that if Jesus is the way and Jesus is the truth, then he is the authority with which we must continually submit our minds and ourselves to, in order that we may know how to live as Christians. Uh, Next slide, please, Matt. So verses 8 to 11 here, God, you are good to me. So that might, that might kind of seem a little bit dreary, a little bit gloomy, but it, but it's actually very good news. We've prayed, God, show me the way, and Jesus reveals to, to us that he is the way. He's offering relationship with us. That is good news, Um, which leads us to praise him for his goodness and his faithfulness. Verse 7 here says, for the sake of your goodness. So that means God's character is one of a willingness to instruct and guide his people. Verse 8, therefore he instructs sinners in the way, he leads the humble in what is right, and teaches the humble his way. This again is good news. There was a time, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'd know this. If not, that's okay. I had to brush up as well. But there was a time when Jesus told the Pharisees that he, Jesus, was the physician who had come to heal the sick. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, that's fine. Uh, Most of us don't know what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee was someone in the Bible who was probably most similar to what we would have today, uh, a lawyer. Similar to a lawyer. A Pharisee was someone who was expert in the Old Testament law, who knew the law, who studied the law, who devoted their entire lives to knowing and understanding the law. A Pharisee would not believe that salvation was a gift that Jesus offered for free. A Pharisee would believe that, no, you will earn salvation through utmost and rigorous respect and adherence to the Old Testament law. So here comes Jesus on the scene and he says, no, that's not true. Jesus says, he is the healer for the sick. The Pharisees were sick people too, in need of healing. But what Jesus is saying is he is more concerned with the posture of our heart. He is more concerned with those who admit their need for a savior. More concerned about people who understand the depravity of our souls. That we are sinner by default. That I am not worthy to approach the throne of God. Jesus is, is looking for that kind of a posture. The Pharisees didn't have it. Jesus says, uh, oh, sorry. This is what it means to be humble before God. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of rambling to get, to get to that. That's what David here is meaning by 
um, being humble before God. It's recognizing our need for a Savior. God is not interested in strong, independent, self-sufficient Christians. That's a tough word. Because our culture tells us the exact opposite. Minute by minute. Doesn't it? That's a tough word, friends. Because I am strong and independent and self-sufficient. I put forward maybe one or two of you is as well. The Bible tells us that one day every knee and every tongue, sorry, every knee will bow and every tongue confessed. That is forced humility. That's not chosen humility. Jesus is giving us a chance to humble ourselves now or be humbled one day. If uh, you're familiar with the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 21 says this, and this is one of those verses that's kind of confusing. If you read this verse, you think, what the heck does that mean? Let me read it. And the one who falls on this stone, that is Jesus, will be broken into pieces. But when it, the stone, or Jesus, falls on anyone, it will crush him. You can read that verse and you think, I don't know what the heck that means. I would say that that's what this means. Jesus is interested in a posture of brokenness and humility. He's not interested in breaking us to a posture of humility, but he will one day. He's giving us an opportunity now to choose him at his word, to accept correction and discipline. I know that sounds like bad news, but it's really good news because we have an opportunity right now today. It's not too late. It is not too late, friends. This is good news. When we humble ourselves, when we recognize the depths of our sin and our utter need for saving, we then pray verse 11. And this is back to Psalm 25. Verse 11, Psalm 25. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. That's a good word, and I think that's what God wants us to pray to him. David here is saying that our sin isn't really about us. Our sin is about God on a bigger level. Our sin separates us from God, but God's work is to unify us, is to redeem us, is to bring us back into relationship with him. That is who he is, and that's what David means when he says, for your name's sake, O Lord. Don't take my, my word for it, though. If, if you do anything, don't accept what I'm saying, you know, the ravings of a lunatic. Don't accept what I'm saying is truth. Go home, pray about it, meditate on it, read this, verse, uh, this, this book, and ask God to reveal to you the truth, because he will, by his spirit. Because he's done it to me. And if he can do it in my heart of stone... I promise you he can do it in yours. I think this actually flows really well into the next section here, which is God instruct me, verses 12 to 15. Thanks, Matt. I know that I'm hitting you with kind of a lot of content and I'm jumping all over the place here. I apologize for that. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this question down to meditate on further as well. What does it mean to fear the Lord? As I said at the beginning, it's not something we really hear a heck of a lot about in our culture, um, our society. We're not really okay with this idea of a God we have to be scared of. And I would say that's not what it means. It doesn't mean to be scared of the Lord. Um, I would put forward to you to try and think uh, according to the picture of a child looking at his or her parents. We have, my wife and I, we've got some really good friends 
and we hang out with them every once in a while. They've, they've got a couple kids. One of them is four. And we were, we were sitting on the couch just talking, and I can't remember what exactly we were saying, but Dad, uh, you know, our friend, the husband, he just said the word spanking. Just kind of, you know, he was telling a story and he said spanking, kind of like how I just said it there. And the four-year-old went, <laughs> you know, and it was really funny. And we all kind of had a chuckle. And, and dad had to say, no, 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 it's, it's okay. You know, you, you're not getting a spanking. It's okay. You know, don't worry. And then, you know, not even five minutes later, you, you, I watched dad and son wrestling on the couch and son giggling and laughing uncontrollably and hysterically. And it was such a nice picture to witness. And I think that's a really good kind of place that we, you know, we can begin to, to understand this concept of fearing the Lord. As a parent who loves us and wants what's best for us, but will discipline us according to that love when we step out of line. That's not a bad picture. And again, this is so countercultural. You know, I think it's law now, it's illegal to spank your child. I think. I could be wrong, but I think it is. You know, culture says if you spank a child, you're hateful or you're ignorant. And I would say, this is my opinion. This is not the opinion of the church. I'm not saying that. But my opinion is discipline is not wrong. You know, discipline in the context of love is actually very helpful. And I have been disciplined numerous times. One time, my mom had to call our next door neighbor to come spank me. I'm not sure if he actually did or not, but the, but, but the, the, the threat alone was, it was punishment enough. <laughs> I, I, I want to kind of answer that, you know, that cultural suggestion, um, you know, I, I want to address something here in our culture that I see, and I see it again in my own heart first. I have said, and I have heard Christians say that, yeah, I, I submit to the Lord. My life is set apart to the Lord. I have given myself to the Lord. And then turn around and watch whatever the heck they want on Netflix. Like me. I will watch whatever the heck I want for however the heck long I want to. I'm not convinced that's truly fearing the Lord. I will watch, or sorry, I will listen to any music that I want to listen to without even a thought of submitting that decision to the Lord. I, I think that what God here is saying is he wants our posture to be that of a child submitting to his father. And you do. You see it. If you don't have children, which I don't, but I see children all the time asking, Mom, Dad, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? I'm not saying that we need to incessantly ask God that way. But I do think there's an element of truth here that we need to consider. What would, what would the result be if before you watched Narcos on Netflix, you would maybe send up a little, a little prayer and say something along the lines of, Lord, is it okay if I watch this television show? What about having a second helping of dessert? <laughs> Kids ask their parents this all the time. Mom, can I have some more? No. Now, you can probably tell how I've not asked that question. <laughs> but I would say, I think this is an immature understanding of how we need to, to fear the Lord and submit our wills to Him. 
As we've just heard Jesus say in, oh, no, that's okay, stay there. It's okay. As we've just heard Jesus say, though, he laid down his life for us. And if we're going to follow him and adopt his life, that means we're under new management. It's not me behind the steering wheel any longer. It's, it's God. It's his authority. It's Jesus Christ. And he wants us to be seeking how to live our lives, even on the, the, you know, the basic things like what we watch, what we listen to, what we say, how we speak. So many Christians today swear so flippantly, myself included. You know, I'm not, I'm, not offering, I'm not offering an excuse. I'm just saying I think we really need to take an inward glance at our heart and our posture of submission towards the Lord. And I think that's what David here is saying when he's talking about fearing the Lord. He then says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. So it's like back and forth, kind of bad and then good. But this is good. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, and he will pluck my feet out of the net. So kind of to summarize here, we, we understand from what we've been talking about that a fear of the Lord is those who have humbled themselves before him and are acutely aware of their need for him because of their sinful states. We need a healing physician. We need someone to intervene. That's, that's the posture that God wants us to take. Then, when we've assumed that posture, God makes known to us these same sinners his covenant of grace. That's what David is saying. The next two lines are as clear and as simply stated, I think, as his covenant of grace could be. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Seek to be in his presence. He'll deliver you from sin. That's it. That's the covenant of grace. That is the covenant or the promise that God extends to us. Yeah, acknowledge that, you know, when you're, when you're in control, things don't go so hot. Just acknowledge that. Acknowledge your need for a Savior, and he will do the rest. Such good news. Okay, uh, next section here, Matt. Thank you. God deliver us. So those of you who uh, have been astutely listening, maybe one or two, not because of you, because of me, you'll, you'll have noticed that the introduction of trust was singular. It was me praying, or it was David praying. And David exits the psalm here by saying we, by saying us, by saying Israel. Uh, there's also quite a bit of a repetition here. So, uh, the, the psalm kind of almost repeats itself, as I've been doing. And I think that's done intentionally to show us the repetition or the cyclical nature of our faith. This is, this is kind of how our faith plays out. We recognize our need of a Savior, which leads us into recognizing God's goodness towards us, which leads us into praising Him for His goodness. And kind of when we, you know, think about how good he is, we kind of remember how bad we are and the, the cycle starts over again. And I think that's okay. That's natural. I also think that this is kind of a cycle that our prayers should, should reflect as well. I think we often pray perhaps ineffectively as Christians. And I think we could perhaps pray more effectively as Christians. Um... And the Psalms often follow this outline. The Psalms are pretty, pretty rigid in how they pray. I'm not saying that we need to pray rigidly, just food for thought. Not really anything here or there. 
Uh, verse 22 gives us permission to not only pray this way individually, but communally also. When we pray for ourselves to be healed, God answers us by healing us. God shows us our need for a Savior. And, and as we kind of take our eyes off of ourself and look up towards God, we see those people around us who are in the same place of need and desperation. So we begin to pray for those people as well. Beautiful. Beautiful. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask the band to come up right now. Thank you. <laughs> Friends, as I've feebly tried to show you, this psalm is about personal communion and covenant with Jesus Christ. He offers to make right the lives which we attempt to make wrong. Communion simply means to be before Jesus in relationship with him, and covenant is an unbreakable promise of relationship that God offers towards us. It's during this part of the sermon that we come to the Lord's table, as we call it, communion or Eucharist, as you may know. This is one of the traditions, the Christian traditions that we're pretty passionate about, that we're pretty excited about at Urban Grace. Um, it is a tradition. It's not a tradition which saves us. If you're non-Christian, you know, if, if you're not a Christian, if you're looking at us, kind of checking this out, this right here, you need to understand, doesn't save you. It, it's not anything like that. Baptism, you might have heard, is another Christian tradition. Doesn't save us. That's not what saves us. This communion is where we take part in something that reminds us what Jesus Christ has done for us. I've been talking a lot about Jesus this morning, talking a lot about Jesus. What did Jesus do for us? He died on the cross for our sins. The Bible tells us um, the wages of sin is death. So if Jesus hadn't done what he did, we would have owed our lives to pay for our sin. Jesus took that debt and he paid it for us on our behalf. That is what the bread represents. It represents his body that was broken for us. That's what the wine represents. It represents his blood that was shed for us. <clears throat> so I would invite you to, before you come up, to listen to the words that the band are going to play, to consider the words that I've said. I know all there was a lot of them. But to consider our posture before God, to, to consider the sin that is in our heart, and then to consider the gift that Jesus offers. I would offer you to repent and confess and then partake with joy and gladness at the gift that has been given to us. <clears throat>